Welcome to This is the Jet Life with Dan Burnham, your guide to the New York Jets sports and much more. And now, your host, Dan Burnham. What is up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of This is the Jet Life. This is the second episode of the 2019 season, but the first one that isn't structured around any Jets games or even practices for that matter. There's just one NFL game left in the 2018 season, and just like 2002, it belongs to the Patriots and to the Rams. This time, hopefully, yielding some different results. That time, if you don't remember, Patriots won 20 to 17. Hopefully, LA brings some different luck for the Rams. I'm going to touch on the Super Bowl briefly in this episode, since it's all we have in the way of live football right now, but I also want to take some time to close out the Jets' 2018 season and open up the 2019 season. As promised at the end of last episode, I am going to break down the overall team and player performances for the Jets this past season, and in doing so, we'll bid Todd Bowles farewell. I think it's important to kind of close it out on the right foot. You know, we spent a lot of time going over all that stuff, and I know everyone wants to focus on the new coaching and everything coming up ahead. But after all that, 17 weeks, 16 games of the Jets playing this year, suffering through that, I mean, 4-12 and for crying out loud, let's give a little bit of credit to what happened, you know, in the grand scheme of things. So we're going to do that, but it should segue nicely into an introduction to our new coaching staff, at least that which is partially in place, and we'll take a brief look ahead of what's coming on the New York Jets docket. Don't worry, folks, it's not all business today. No, we're going to have a little fun along the way as well with a little what's on tap, some Pro Bowl news, NFL coaching updates, some Jets history, and even a few mailbag questions. Now, there's been rumors of a what's on snack making a reappearance this week, but I cannot currently confirm the truth to that. All I know is that we are suffering through yet another Patriots Super Bowl, and survival requires grasping at straws to find a sense of positivity this time of season. There's a reason that the show is called This is the Jet Life. We are all living it. It's one of those things that's hard to describe, but you know it when you feel it. That pit in your stomach that you try to bury in blind optimism. That feeling we're all experiencing right now. I've just got chills. All right, let's pull up the landing gears, get this baby to altitude, starting with the Super Bowl, right? It's this time of year, and nothing is more important than the two greatest teams on the planet. So it's important we take some time to recognize those teams. But to do that, we've got to take this thing back a little bit. Setting the stage. The year was 1969 and Broadway Joe was a star. Joe Namath leading the AFL's insignificant football league up against the mighty NFL and the Baltimore Colts. Now, John Unitas was out, but his backup had won MVP in the season, and everyone was wondering, is there any chance the New York Jets can beat a Super Bowl against the superior NFL? Now, at this point in time, the NFL and the AFL were two totally different leagues, and everybody knew the NFL was top dog, the AFL was a kind of smaller league trying to make a footprint. They'd never won a Super Bowl yet. In fact, they'd only had two. They were kind of like at that point, well, at the end of our season, we'll allow your best team to play our best team just to see what happens. And the Packers win the first two, both NFL teams. And, you know, everyone says, well, of course the NFL winning. We're the better team. It's like the NFL playing against a CFL team. Not that bad, but that sort of a thing. Now, the year's 1969. The Packers don't make it this year. It's the Baltimore Colts for the NFL going up against Broadway Joe and the New York Jets. Now, not only... Does Joe Namath know he's going to win the game? He guarantees it publicly. This guy is a sex symbol, one of the coolest guys on the planet. He's got bars in New York City. He wears giant, lavish coats, lives a big-time lifestyle. He ends up being a movie star. This guy is the coolest, all right? But not only was he cool, he was damn good. The New York Jets win that game against the Baltimore Colts, and it was the first time an AFL team had ever won a Super Bowl, Super Bowl III. 
led by guys like Emerson Boozer, Don Maynard, and of course, Joe Namath. The New York Jets were Super Bowl champions, and that game forced the merger of the NFL and the AFL into what is now the one grand great NFL. The New York Jets won probably the most significant and impactful Super Bowl in NFL history, and this is the 50th year anniversary of that game. It's worth taking a step back to kind of reflect on how amazing that was, what it meant for us today, not having to watch two different leagues, not having to watch the XFL and the NFL. You know, I mean, we're starting the Alliance of American Football, but that's hopefully going to be a minor league for the NFL rather than a, a competitive league. Back then, the NFL and AFL, you know, they were enemies. But when the Jets won that game, and they proved to everybody, hey, maybe the AFL's not as bad as everybody thinks. Maybe they got a chance to do this. It's worth making one league. Let's capitalize together, grow this thing, and make what is now one of the most powerful entities in the United States. And that's the NFL. So you can thank the New York Jets for that, because they did win the most significant Super Bowl in NFL history 50 years ago today, 1969. And that's what we should all be talking about this time of year. End scene. Uh, everyone's probably going to try to be talking about the Patriots and Rams. You're going to notice a lot of that hodgepodge being thrown around. Uh, that game is coming up. It's coming up this weekend. I think it's 6.30 on Sunday. Tony Romo is calling the game, which is like the best thing about this entire Super Bowl. And uh, it's a rematch of that 2002 game, as I mentioned before, Patriots-Rams. This time Rams are repping L.A. rather than St. Louis. But, you know, the Rams have a pretty powerful team. It's not the greatest show on turf, but they got a running game. they got some receivers. They've got a quarterback who's up and coming they got a young, offensive-minded head coach, something the Jets have been looking for. And they've got a defense that can back up a lot of stuff as well. I know they've been a little sloppy at times, but they can give the Patriots a run for their money. It's going to be uh, a tough game. You know, it's hard to sit here and say that I, I in my heart of hearts, truly believe the Patriots are going to lose this game. But I will never root for the Patriots, of course, and I'm never going to sit here and say the Patriots are going to win. I can't do that. I don't have it in me. So St. Louis taking this one. they got to find a way to be... You know, they got to have a lead in the fourth quarter. Going into the fourth quarter, I think they have to have the lead and uh, and hope they can hold on. A couple big plays. You saw it last year. The Patriots easily could have made a comeback against the Eagles, but that one big sack at the end, stripping Tom Brady, that ended the game. Um, you know, had there not been an offsides against the Chiefs at the very end of the game, that interception could have ended it. Who knows? Um, touching on that game really quick since I didn't get to that. Everyone's talking about the Saints versus Rams call that wasn't called. Almost as bad as that was the personal foul that was called on Tom Brady for a defensive player on the Chiefs swatting at his helmet, not even hitting him at all, not touching him in the helmet, but a flag was thrown 15 yards for the Patriots at the end of the game. That was an extremely crucial play that nobody's talking about. It's absolutely ridiculous. Just goes to show, like, anybody comes near Tom Brady and breathes on him, you got to throw a flag because, you know, this guy's he's too important to the NFL. We can't have him hurt. Throw flags. Nobody can go near him. For crying out loud, the guy didn't even touch him, and he got flagged for a personal foul roughing the passer. That's a bad call. That's just as bad as the freaking Rams one, in my opinion, because Tom Brady gets away with that stuff time and time again. We've seen it a thousand times. But enough on all that. This is going to be probably a pretty good game because the Rams have been an offensive powerhouse all year. The Patriots find a way to take out your best players. Don't be surprised to watch guys like Brandon Cooks and Robert Woods kind of get shut out and then watch them contain Todd Gurley. You're going to have to throw to guys like Gerald Everett and Reynolds. You're going to have to find those different guys. It'd be nice to have Cooper Cup in this game, but the Rams don't have him. Uh, the Patriots have a very intricate defense that they change and adapt to teams very very well they do very good scouting and they have great game plans going in then on offense just dinking and dunking it's really hard for guys like Aaron Donald and Ndamukong Sue to get big pressure on a guy like Tom Brady if he's just dumping the ball off to the running backs if he's just hitting the zones in short crossing patterns guys like Edelman and Hogan 
just time and time again, it's really tough to do that. You have to have strong, strong discipline from your defensive backs. I'm not entirely sure that guys like Marcus Peters and Aqib Tlaib have that. Aqib Tlaib a little later in his career. Marcus Peters having a very inconsistent and undisciplined year himself. It's just going to be a really tough, tough task for the Rams. They're going to need some big plays, of course. Go figure. You're going to need to do everything right. You can't have bad fumbles. can't have bad penalties if you're the Rams. you got to capitalize on opportunities to get interceptions. got to get your sacks. you got to make a couple splash plays here and there. Maybe a big sack, maybe a big interception, kickoff returns, anything in the way of that stuff. I think you're going to see JoJo Natson, ex-New York Jet Kick returner, returning for the St. Louis Rams. And I'm not going to lie, he's pretty bad still. Uh, we had Andre Roberts this year, too, so it seems like everybody that returns kicks that isn't on our team is bad. But JoJo Natson, really nothing special. Huge improvement for the Jets this year. That's what we got going on for the Super Bowl. If I want to make a prediction on this one, I'm going to go ahead and say Rams 27, Patriots 23. And, you know, is it possible that the other team that's not the Rams wins? Yeah, absolutely. It's just nothing that we are going to be talking about on this show. So... With that, we will move on from the Super Bowl, getting out of the next stuff. Uh, NFL news. The biggest news this time of year that isn't centered around the Super Bowl is the coaching changes. And that's because we haven't gotten into free agency yet. There's not a ton of restructures, re-signings, things like that going on this time of year. It'll come soon. But right now, a lot of teams are kind of filling out their coaching staffs. And you're seeing seven teams around the league that are looking for new head coaches. And five of them have found them. Just going down the list here, guys, that you know people were looking for a brief history on the guy. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they bring in Bruce Arians, who was only one year retired, stepped away from the game, had some health stuff. He's getting older, but he's a good coach. Everybody knows he's very, very smart. And the Bucs, they got a good one here. What does he do? He brings his old defensive coordinator that played with him with the, with the uh, Cardinals, Todd Bowles, defensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers now. A lot of coaches bring their old coaches with them. You know, head coaches bring their assistants and stuff. One, because they trust them, they know them. Guys that are getting jobs usually have had success in the league. If you're really, really bad as a head coach, you're probably not getting more chances, so you don't bring your assistance. If you had success, you have stuff to bring to the table, then yeah, you probably have a relationship with guys and you found some success at some point in your career. That's what's yielding this extra opportunity. Now, aside from that, you also know have a guy that knows your culture, the kind of offense or defense that you're instilling. You got almost another little version of you on the field when you're away. You need somebody that can execute your plan, your strategies. You don't have to constantly be watching them like, is he doing what I think he's doing, or is he going as, you know, not going rogue on me here? So Bruce Arians, Todd Bowles, they are reconnecting this time down in Florida. The Cardinals, they're bringing in Coach Cliff Kingsbury, a guy that a lot of Jets fans were looking at. Why? Because he's young. That's really it. That's really the only reason they wanted to get him. This guy was an offensive coordinator for USC. It was a team that wasn't all that successful this year in college football. Um, he had been a head coach prior to that, got fired, went to be an offensive coordinator for USC, and a lot of people were excited that he had a decent offense college resume, and uh, he's super young. Everybody's looking for that next Sean McVay, but it's definitely a stretch and, and one of the more risky coaching hires of the entire NFL. So you get like one of two things. You either go crazy and you hire some, it's one of three things. One, you go college, you hire somebody who's never done it before. You say, let's get a young guy, a new mind, and bring him in here. Sometimes it works. More often than not, it doesn't. Next thing you can do is you can take an assistant or a coordinator from a team that had success and try to bring them over. Say, this guy was really great as the offense or defensive coordinator from a great team. He's going to be our new guy. Third option is taking an old head coach and just recycling him around the league, much like a Mike McCarthy could have been but isn't this year. So the Cardinals go with the young one, Cliff Kingsbury. A lot of Jets fans wanted it. I was not advocating for that at all. 
I wanted a guy named Todd Munkin, who was the offensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year. But unfortunately, the New York Jets did not get him. Moving on, though, the Broncos signed Vic Fangio, the defensive coordinator for the Chicago Bears, a team that had an extremely stout and strong defense this year, brought a lot of young players in, made made something out of, you know, a really young team, made that defense really, really good, got the Bears to the playoffs, and Vic Fangio, he's kind of an old-school-style coach. He's not that new-style offensive guy, but when you bring in a hard-nosed defense guy, Vic Fangio, super respected, probably going to have some success with the Broncos. And that's a team that, you know, they've got a defense, they're building around that, trying to capitalize on their strengths. Their offense, as we know, receivers are getting a little bit older. Quarterback, not exactly what they were hoping he was going to be. So uh, just, you know, really making their, their bright spots shine even brighter. And the Browns, they fired Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley. That team is an absolute mess. They promote Freddie Kitchens, who was a the guy they brought in 2018 to be their running backs coach. After offensive coordinator Todd Haley was fired, eight games... Freddie Kitchens comes in, offensive coordinator for Greg Williams, who was the head coach interim for the Cleveland Browns. Freddie Kitchens, he is one of those, uh, he's been in the system. He was there finding success with Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield advocates for him. He was one of the guys that was not carrying a ton of drama. It looks like when you look at that Cleveland Brown locker room, there was a ton of drama there. An article just came out this week that was like talking about how dysfunctional that franchise is. Um, I mean, and you put him on hard knocks. It's just the whole thing was a mess. And Freddie Kitchen somehow slid under the radar, stayed out of all that stuff. Everyone got fired. He moved up, found success, got that offense kind of rolling, made Baker Mayfield look pretty good, and they decided, hey, we're going to take a shot with this guy, go offensive, and make him head coach. I think that he um, he's probably not prepared for a role like that. We'll see how well he does. If he can adapt and learn it quickly, could be really good. You know, he's got some young players on offense and defense that he can kind of rely on early on, and hopefully he can grow into the role. But, you know, going in week one, I'd be a little nervous with him being my head coach. You get the Packers, they get Matt LaFleur from the Tennessee Titans offensive coordinator, another offensive guy you see replacing Mike McCarthy, and they really want to try to build this thing around Aaron Rodgers, get him a little bit more weapons in there, change his playbook a little bit. We're going to see how that works because Aaron Rodgers likes to call the plays himself. Um, you know, you can call a play, but he's probably going to audible. He's going to do what he wants to do because he's that good and you know confident in his own ability, you can call it. So we're going to see how that meshes with Matt LaFleur. Some people think that's a somewhat uh, surprising signing, but guy could be a uh, guy could prove him wrong. And you know, we all know that Aaron Rodgers is going to be a huge, huge spokesman in those offensive meetings. He's going to have a huge hand in what's being called on offense. So we'll see how Matt Floor handles all that. And you got two more teams in the Bengals and the Dolphins who are currently looking for head coaches. And right now, it looks like they're lined up to take two coaches' assistance from the Super Bowl contenders. The Bengals are looking at quarterbacks coach for the Los Angeles Rams, Zach Taylor. Now, this guy is being looked at because, basically, the Rams don't have an offensive coordinator. It's Sean McVay. He calls the plays. And Zach Taylor is the closest thing to Sean McVay in terms of the offense. So if you touched him, everybody wants you. That's just how it's going right now. If you touch Sean McVay, people want you. They want a guy that's young. That's what everybody's looking for. They're taking a shot. They want to find that guy that's 33, can relate to the players. He's cool. He's hip. He knows the, you know, he's got a modern mind for football. He's not stuck in old ways. He's ready to adapt, find new things, and, and just have a good relationship with the guys so Bengals are probably going to take a shot on a guy in Zach Taylor who absolutely does not deserve a head coaching job at this point in his career but may surprise some people since he has been working with a great offensive mind the Dolphins are the last team and they're on division they're looking for Brian Flores defensive coordinator for the New England Patriots now this is a guy that kind of just stepped into the role taking over from Matt Patricia but 
There's a reason that Matt Patricia got hired by the Detroit Lions, and there's a reason that Brian Flores is being looked at. The Patriots have a very smart, complex defense. I think it's driven the, the Dolphins and, you know, all teams in the AFC East crazy for years. They can find a way to take out your best players and make you play to your weaknesses, and the Dolphins are looking to get that, you know. Brian Flores didn't do it for nearly as long as Matt Patricia, so maybe he's not quite as ready. He hasn't been doing it for, you know, at this point, he's basically finishing up his first season. But the Dolphins, I think, see it also as an interdivision guy who maybe can come and give some secrets to the Patriots. The way that you win this division, the way that you make the playoffs in the AFC East at this point right now, you got to find a way to win some games against the Patriots. You can't get swept by them, lose two games. you got to at least win one if you can win two. I mean, who knows? Challenge for the division soon. And if you can get some of the tools of the trade, some tricks, some tips from a guy who's been inside that enemy locker room, Brian Flores, I think it makes sense for them. Similar to the New York Jets and the move that they made, trying to get an inside division guy who will give a little bit of insight, already kind of knows the landscape a little bit. You know, it's not like you have to come in and Brian Flores has to say, all right, who are these new teams I'm going to be facing? I got to start prepping for Sam Darnold's and Tom Brady's and Josh Allen's. No, he's already been doing that. This guy's ready to play those six games right away. He's already been in the AFC playing those positions and stuff. Um, so that's what's going on there. You're going to see as you go through this, you've basically got, if those two guys get hired, you got out of the seven new head coaches, including the Jets, you've got five new offensive head coaches and two new defensive head coaches. So the NFL definitely is taking a, a step in the direction of offensive mind coaching, and uh, everybody wants to get that new high-powered offense that you're seeing, you know, those Rams, Chiefs, Saints, these teams that are just slinging the ball, finding ways to have complex advantageous offenses and uh, it's kind of the way the NFL is going right now the rule book is changing a little bit to allow a little bit more of that and uh, you know these teams are trying to capitalize on it so it makes sense the Jets are in that realm as well but before we get to that let's touch on a few other things going around in the NFL we just had the Pro Bowl we had a couple of guys repping it for the New York Jets Jason Myers place kicker Andre Roberts kick and punt returner and the boy Jamal Adams the best player on our team strong safety uh, this guy actually won defensive MVP for the game in the Pro Bowl. If you watched it, it was a very bad, uncompetitive game. It's crazy that they still play it. I think it's more important to be voted there and hang out with the guys and the team camaraderie than the actual game itself. The game is just kind of like a, a sham of itself. But Jamal, he was all over the field. He was entertaining. He was, you know, quote-unquote blitzing when you weren't supposed to. He had an interception. Um, he was a lot of fun to watch. Earlier in the preseason practice week, he tackled the Patriots mascot. You know, very fun thing, a little hijinks, making fans laugh. You know, it was it was all in fun and games. And the Patriots media tries to make a big deal out of it, say that the guy was hospitalized and Jamal Adams hurt him, and it became this big story they're talking about on the fan and everywhere else, saying, oh, my gosh, Jamal Adams maybe is like some, some villain for tackling the Patriots mascot. And then later on you find out that whole story was made up in terms of the hospital. He never went. The guy was never injured. There's actually videos of him later in practice tackling Jamal Adams back because it was all fun and games and, you know, it's just trying to make a, a fun-loving guy who, you know, he's young, he's silly, trying to make him into a, a bad guy. It's just not the case. There was no ill will in his heart when he did that. He was just trying to uh, be a little funny. It was a pretty legit tackle, but, you know, the guy's a freaking Pro Bowl safety. He's going to tackle well. He's not going to come in and, and be a lame duck on him. What do you expect there? Some other NFL news and notes. Kareem Hunt is not being coveted by the New York Jets. We decided we don't want him because he's got a lot of off-the-field issues that really aren't worth dealing with right now for this New York Jets team and their new regime. And you got uh, Antonio Brown, a guy that's potentially on the trade block. He's another guy. The Jets haven't stated that they're staying away from him, but I truly believe the New York Jets should stay away from him. We've got young, moldable clay 
future star Sam Darnold on our team. The last thing in the world that we need is a guy like that trying to dictate throws, change the offense, say, I need this, do whatever. I don't want him. Le'Veon Bell, he's the guy. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, him and some other free agents in an upcoming episode. I only have so much time today and wanted to cover the coaching and the Jets recap from 2018. So next season is going to be focused a little bit more on free agents. That's guys like Le'Veon Bell. Guys like Demarcus Lawrence, whoever else could be on the move, and, and just players the Jets are going to be looking for, expiring contracts on our team and stuff. So look forward to that next week. But uh, yeah, that's the big news for the NFL. I want to get into the the uh, Jet specific stuff now. So let's do it. But before that, we got to do a little section called "What's on Tap." That's right, it's "What's on Tap," and it goes over the beer that I'm currently drinking while recording this episode. And this week, I'm drinking a Clown Shoes. Stranger, American Hefeweizen Ale. And I chose this beer because of the name. I had it in my fridge because it is a Hefeweizen that I enjoy. But it's the Stranger. And this time of year, you got these new coaches coming in. The Jets are one of them. And you got new guys coming in leading your team, you know. New new leaders and minds coming in saying, this is how we're doing it. And it's kind of like, who is this guy? Do we trust him? Is he going to be good? Are his coordinators going to be good? These assistants? I don't know. I know what we had before. And you got these strange guys coming in, leading players that you already know, or maybe some new ones as well. So... For a lot of teams, that stranger mentality kind of going around the league as you find these new guys coming into your building and you know, dictating where your team is going. But this one is a Clown Shoes beer. On top is their mission statement, our mission to produce beer without pretension while being free and a little crazy. And one thing that's cool about Clown Shoes is they always have cool names, like this one's The Stranger, but uh, the cans are always awesome. They've got crazy awesome can art. This one's like, looks like an astronaut on Mars holding a, a weird little flag with a... Uh, like a clay giant that has a small astronaut cat on his shoulder. And I know it sounds crazy, but it is crazy. If you find the beer, take a look at it. Uh, you don't have to get it if you don't like it, but it's a, it's a delicious Hefeweizen. Now, Hefeweizens usually, in my experience, are lower alcohol percentage. This one is a 7.7, and it's a uh, it's just an American Hefeweizen ale. It's bubbly. It's got a little pop to it. It's, uh, it's refreshing, but it tastes kind of like a... It's got that light IPA flavor but on top of like a, a strong bubbly wheat beer. And for me, it's good. 7.7%. It does the trick. It's a tall boy can, a 16-ouncer. And uh, Clown Shoes makes pretty good product. This is another one. It's smooth. If you don't like Hefeweizens, it doesn't taste like uh, like a regular IPA. definitely has a, a strange strange flavor to it, but it's good. It's brewed in Boston, Massachusetts, and Windsor, Vermont. So hopefully this is one of the Vermont batches. I don't really want to be drinking anything from Boston. Um didn't really think about that. I don't think it has a control number on it that will distinguish where it was. Let's see on the bottom. It was canned on May 7th, 2018. Jesus. Nobody buys this stuff, I guess. I went to a pretty big liquor warehouse to find this thing because I like it, but May 7th, that seems a little crazy. It's freaking January right now. Oh, man. I just bought this like two weeks ago. All right. Note to self. Check the bottom of the cans. Maybe they're running some FIFO first in, first out, and they're putting all the old shit in front, but for crying out loud. Maybe that's why it tastes a little funky and, and bubbly. Who's to say this is even the real flavor? You're talking that old. Um, Okay, so a bit of a spoiler alert on a spoiled beer, perhaps. We'll see. I don't know what the uh, the shelf life is for a Hefeweizen, but uh... <sighs> shake that one off. All right. Let's move away from what's on tap. Everybody's curious. Dan, sometimes you snack while you're making these episodes. What's on snack? And I'm glad you asked, because today I do have something a little special. I came home, 
and I had to record this episode, and then when I'm finished with this, Shannon's going to yoga, so like the whole dinner thing's not lining up, and it's like, what am I going to do? Best thing I can do is just force food into my mouth as early as I can, try to stay full for as much time as I can, because if I leave this thing hungry, it's going to be like a panic, when I, and I got to figure out what the heck am I going to eat, got to make something, but if I, if I kind of push that back, suppress it, fill myself a little bit, then, you know, the, the stakes aren't as high, and, and the, there's no pressure really to do anything, it's like, then I could just Maybe I'll have an egg. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll have some pretzel rods. Maybe I won't eat anything at all. It won't. It won't matter. So I'm, today I'm having some Swiss cheese, on some rosemary and olive oil triscuits, and it is delightful. I pre-cut the Swiss cheese, which I don't usually do. Brought it in here, brought the perfect amount of triscuits to go with that cheese, and I'm just enjoying these things every every so often. Um, I got them under a really hot light right now, so the cheese is getting meltier and meltier as the episode goes on, and uh, it's really adding a nice brine to the end of the cheese and creating a nice little uh nice little flavor bug here so that is what's on snack and what's on tap the stranger beer swiss cheese and some rosemary and olive oil crackers that's dinner today three course meal okay so i want to go over the new york jets 2018 season the player performances the team performances and to start with that i want to do team stats how did the jets fare by the time the season was over what did the offense look like what did the defense look like you know what are we trying to work on where are we going from here? Let's just wrap this whole thing up. Team stats. Offensive yards. New York Jets, 299.2 yards per game. 29th in the league. That was broken up into two categories, passing and rushing yards per game. Passing yards, 197.8. 25th in the league. Rushing yards per game, 101.4. 26th in the league. So... They broke 100 yards per game, but still only 26th in the league. Their passing was slightly better at a uh, against the league standpoint at 25th, but overall that yielded the 29th offense in terms of yards per game. Points per game, slightly better than that. 20.8 points per game for 23rd in the league. So a little better than those two other categories. Now something else, the, you know, these are the categories that we were doing team stats for at the end of the uh, each game with the recaps. Some stuff that was really important. Third down percentage. New York Jets, 32.2% on third down. Very, very poor. 29th in the league. That's a category that the New York Jets really have to get better on. A lot of that's because they had really tough situations, running the ball for one yard or no yards. You're getting a bad penalty to back them up. And getting into these third and long situations where they really couldn't do anything. Teams were either sending the house to blitz Sam Darnold and not let him get the ball away, or they were just playing deep coverage with a lot of guys, knowing that we had to throw it 11 yards. So that was their... 29th in the league for third down percentage. Penalties. This was a category that I thought all year long was like, the penalties are just too much for the Jets. We're constantly having more penalties than our opponent. But somehow, 114 penalties on the year, tied for ninth. Only ninth most penalties in the league. You would think it would be so much more than that. Penalty yardage was worse, 948 yards for 16th in the league. So you're going to see some more uh, higher yardage penalties in there. That would be more personal fouls more unsportsmanlike conducts and those sort of things. And then pass interferences are a big part of that, where it's uh, spot fouls. So the Jets 16th in penalty yards. You would think it would be a little bit worse, but that's where they're at. Giveaway and takeaway. Very important to have more takeaways than you do giveaways. The Jets were minus 10 this year. 20 total takeaways, 30 giveaways. Minus 10, 27th in the league. Again, very low. Sacks for the team, 39 sacks actually. Tied for 16th. It's not good, but compared to everything else, when you're 29th, 25th, 23rd, 29th, you know, when you're bad across the board, 
16th in sacks, not so bad, especially considering this is a team that didn't really have one or two big-time double-digit sack artists. They weren't getting back to the quarterback consistently. It was just a mix of a bunch of different guys, a, a sack-by-committee sort of thing. So 39 total sacks for the Jets, 16th. One category that's not that important but I thought was interesting because the Jets were pretty high is pass deflections. The Jets were tied for ninth in pass deflections in the NFL with 71. And a lot of that's because Mo Claiborne, very high in pass deflections. Jamal Adams, very high as well. And then some of the other DBs. You saw really good play overall from guys like Claiborne, Jamal Adams, Daryl Roberts. You definitely saw some decent play at times from Tremaine Johnson. And then Buster Screen here and there, he had some moments as well. Some guys at the line, Henry Anderson was knocking stuff down. And uh, when it's all said and done, ninth in the league in pass deflections. It's one of the areas that the Jets actually kind of uh, did well. So that's what's going on with team stats for the New York Jets. Overall, not a great season for the team. We knew that. We watched it. We suffered through it. But the stats tell the story, and you can see they really didn't have a strong offense. When it was all said and done, they really didn't have a strong defense. And these are two things that play into each other. It's really hard to con- control the ball when the other team has it and is scoring so much on you and your game's kind of getting dictated by the other team and their performance. Now it's like, all right, we got to throw, we got to take away the run, change our game plan, yada, yada. And uh, then vice versa. It's hard to play defense when your offense isn't sustaining drives. If you're not moving the ball down the field, taking a decent time of possession, getting down there, good field position, things like that, it puts it tough on your defense. They're on the field more. You know, your offense is going three and out or whatever. Your defense is right back out there. They're still tired. Field position is poor. Puts them in tough positions. And the two things kind of feed one another. The Jets didn't have a great year overall. And uh, it just goes to show offense, defense, both need to be better. We got a new coaching staff. Hopefully, going to come in and change that stuff right away. Before we get to the coaches, I want to step away and just do a little uh, player recap for these guys because those stats weren't great, but there were some players that had some decent seasons. Overall, not really. You didn't have a lot of superstars out there. Um, it wasn't any like you know historical New York Jets seasons, really. There were a few historical games throughout the year, like Isaiah Crowell's rushing game, but there weren't historical seasons from these players because they really didn't have great offensive or defensive numbers, and the team overall wasn't all that talented. But let's just go through these guys and see what they did because we did stats after every week going through all the players and stuff. How did it fare when it was all said and done? We'll start with Sam Darnold, our quarterback, who threw 57.7% completion percentage. It's a decently high percentage for NFL standards usually, but the NFL's been getting a little bit better in completion percentage, and 57.7 really isn't quite as high as it used to be. It used to, like, you know, over 55 is what you were looking for for a young guy, which Sam Darnold did. You know, if you were over 60, 65, that'd be great, but there's a lot of guys that are in that range now, so 57.7 really wasn't all that high. He threw for 2,865 yards, which is 23rd in the league. Not a great season throwing the ball, but, you know, at the end of the day, the guy's a rookie, He's playing with a defensive-minded head coach who was fired. We have a very, you know, lackluster sort of offense in terms of the playmakers that we have and just overall talent surrounding Sam Darnold, and it was his first year. Jeremy Bates, we don't know exactly how well he did as an offensive coordinator. We saw some really questionable play calling at times, very conservative and stuff, started to come alive a little bit more towards the end of the year, but he's gone now, and uh, it's hard to put too much blame on Darnold in his first year because overall it was a pretty solid season. Um, you know, you saw it more of the eye test than the results. He did have 17 t- touchdowns passing, which was tied for 24th in the league. He had 15 interceptions, so he did have a positive ratio there, 17 touchdowns to 15 interceptions, but he was actually tied for second for the most interceptions in the league, and that was with, like, Case Keenum and Andrew Luck tied at second, and then Ben Roethlisberger was the only guy that had more. So 15 interceptions for him, 
kind of a lot try to get that number down try to get that touchdown number up but these are all things that are going to come in time and I wouldn't be surprised if this was statistically one of Sam Darnold's worst NFL seasons in the next seven eight years Sam Darnold was only sacked 30 times this is something that I said was extremely important to me I didn't want him to get crushed I knew our offensive line wasn't really there tough for a young quarterback teams are going to try to blitz him a lot um, we don't have the great skill players to like you know run the ball take it out of his hands and stuff but this guy this guy did pretty well under pressure. He rolled out at the right times. He ran for the artist he needed to. He threw it away when he had to. He didn't make a ton of dumb, undisciplined decisions. Um, overall, he did a good job. And being sacked only 30 times was pretty impressive. Some was on the offensive line. Definitely better pass pro than run protection this year. But, you know, a lot of that's on Sam Darnold. Reading the defenses, moving in the pocket well, having that good vision around the field, seeing the guys coming at him while keeping his eyes downfield. And, uh, you know, my goal before the season was like 45 sacks on Sam Darnold. So it wouldn't be one of those David Carr, kill this guy, his career is almost over because of shell shock. Um, and 30, more than more than okay in my mind. He only played 13 games, so he probably would have had a few more. But, you know, he's only sacked three or so uh, times per game, whichever it ends up being. Probably less than that. Two, two and a half times a game. So add three games, seven and a half, he'd be like, you know, 38 total sacks, which is good. Well under the number we were looking for. And the Jets had more sacks than they gave up this year, which is also pretty cool. Now, he also ran for 138 yards, a touchdown. He only lost one fumble, which everyone said was going to be a huge issue for Sam Darnold, right? He was like, this guy not only throws a lot of interceptions, but he fumbles the ball. Now, we did have some fumbles this year because of bad snaps. We saw a lot of that with Spencer Long earlier in the year. But only one fumble was actually lost by Sam Darnold in the entire season. And I think that's pretty good and definitely a much lower number than people were expecting coming into this year. So he had, uh, you know... 138 rushing yards and 3.3 scrambles per game so you see you know a couple times a game he takes off and that's just part of his vision sometimes it's not to gain big yardage but it's just to keep from a negative play why not pick up three yards rather than lose four or throw the ball away or this or that so in those situations it was pretty good on Sam Darnold he had some pretty good veteran um sort of poise and moxie you saw in the season and I think you saw a little bit more of that later on I think you're going to see it keep growing and continuing especially with the new coaching staff and players that are going to be coming in so moving away from Sam, who in my mind was awesome, I loved watching Sam Darnold play. I think it was some of the most exciting quarterback play I've seen in a while, even though it wasn't super flashy. Just like the things that he would do here and there, just these sparks where you're like, oh, this is going to be going on for the next 10 years. It just was good, uplifting, and it felt good and confident moving forward. So Sam Darnold's season, in my mind, is much better than those numbers make it out to be. Let's go over to the rushing game. Isaiah Crowell, he had 685 yards to lead the team in 13 games with a 4.8 yard per carry average. He had 28th most rushing yards in the NFL. All right. I mean, he only played in those 13 games. He could have had more, but not a huge rushing season for him. 685 yards. I'm sure he would have liked to play those three games, see if he could get to 1,000 yards or so. Be a little bit higher up, but that's kind of how it ends. Powell only played seven games, but had the second most yards, 343, with a 4.3 yard per carry average. So decent averages for Crowell and Powell. A little bit more uh, boomer bust run style rather than a consistent four every play but not so bad. Then later in the season, you saw some injuries to those two guys. You see a little bit more Maguire and Cannon. Maguire, 276 yards in eight games, three yard per carry average. Trenton Cannon, 113 yards in 16 games, three yard per carry average. Much less production from Cannon and Maguire. Not sure if it was because end of the year offensive line was getting tired, a little bit more injuries there. It was nice to have a, a better one-two punch early, having Powell out there, but Maguire really didn't get it done in the running game. And Cannon, you know, he's he's more of a He's more of a gimmicky player, I guess, than, than anything else in the, in the 
in terms of like a real threat running the ball right now at least at this point in his career he's just a rookie sure but both of those guys late round draft picks that we're going to see if the new coaching staff and and stuff are, are going to find a way to get them into there or if they kind of want to make a change Bilal Powell is not under contract for next season so don't have to worry about that it's going to be Crowell McGuire Cannon on the roster right now are they going to bring in another guy or two and are they going to replace any of them we'll find out uh, when it comes to touchdowns Crowell had six which is tied for 20th in the league McGuire had three Cannon had one Powell didn't have any rushing touchdowns in the whole year now when you go to receiving for the running backs McGuire he had a 19 receptions for 193 yards and a touchdown. McGuire was definitely much more effective in the receiving game than he was in the rushing game, and maybe that's what he's going to be used for. Maybe he's going to be more of a third down style back because he can pick up a blitz pretty well. He can catch the ball pretty well. They like to use him. Sometimes he lines up as a receiver, and he's been somewhat effective in that role. Swing patterns going across the middle. He has had some success receiving, so maybe the offense is going to be able to use him that way. Then you got Isaiah Crowell. He had 21 catches for 152 yards, no receiving touchdowns. Powell, he had 11 receptions, 110 yards, and a touchdown. And Cannon had 17 receptions, 144 yards, and no touchdowns. So that was what our running backs did this season. Nothing great. You know, 28th in rushing yards for Crowell, 20th in touchdowns. Not towards the top half of the league in those categories. Definitely not a super flashy you know, running season for the New York Jets. And that's another reason, like, you don't want to put too much pressure or blame on Sam Darnold because, like, look what's happening around him. It's not like he's got these guys. Everyone's making it easy on him. All you, got, you don't have Todd Gurley back there and all these receivers lining up that are just making your job super easy. It's the opposite. It's like you're trying to make these guys get. So how do we make Eli McGuire get positive yardage on these plays to set me up for bigger ones? You know, how do I hit these receivers and try to get whoever open, you know, Jermaine Curse, try to find a way to get him success? Just became kind of a, a chore all season long. So let's get into that receiving game for the New York Jets. Receiving yards, your leader was Robbie Anderson, 752, which was 37th in the NFL. He had six touchdowns, which was 24th in the NFL, tied for 24th. So that was our best receiver, 752 yards, six touchdowns. They're not like horrendous numbers, um, but he played in 14 games. And it's just, uh, you know, he started off okay got really slow towards the middle of the year ended hot and i think that he's going to use that going into next year i think he's a guy that guy that we should resign he's a uh, restricted free agent and that we should definitely bring him back i think that sam darnold was building a little chemistry with him towards the end of the year but you know for him for us for your number one receiver it's just not what you're looking for in that season your next best receiver on this team was chris herndon a rookie tight end who a lot of people didn't think was going to have this much of an impact on the New York Jets roster year one, but he had 502 yards and four touchdowns, second on the team in both categories. And actually, those uh, 17, or those 502 receiving yards for him was actually 17th among tight ends. So almost that middle of the league for starters, and the guy was a rookie in his first year. So Chris Herndon has an extremely bright future. He's on the roster with a pretty team-friendly deal for the next two, three years. Jets are very happy to have him. And we're going to see him get incorporated more and more into the offense. Let's just keep him healthy, keep learning and growing, and, uh, you know, the guy's going to be just fine. Quincy Nunwa, a player that we re-signed, 449 yards. He had a touchdown. Decent season for him. Um, you know, he was injured a lot. When he played, he was good. People knew that he was a freight train. He would knock people over. His play, you know, with the eye test, when you watch him, it's like, wow, this guy's got some skill. Who is this guy? Who's Quincy Nuno? People don't realize he's been in the league for a little bit longer than they thought. You know, is he a new young guy? He's been on the team for a while. But 449 yards, he was just injured a lot this year. You know, he ended up playing in 11 games. He missed five, but it was just all throughout the year for different things. It's this, it's that. He's coming back from an injury. He never was truly completely healthy, didn't feel like a lot of the time. 
and uh, we re-signed him. I think that the deal is going to be useful for the New York Jets. I think that it has the potential, if he plays well, to you know keep him on the roster and keep a receiver that we desperately need playmakers right now. There's not a huge field of guys to go grab at wide receiver in this free agent class. you got to get guys on the roster. He's one of the guys that can do it. We have to keep him healthy is the big thing for him. Um, maybe doing less screens. I think he did a, a quote recently this week that was like, less screens, more downfield catches for him moving forward. And he wants it. It's going to keep him healthy. He's got to be a little bit less aggressive with his uh, yards after catch. But, uh, you know, Quincy Newman, he's one of those guys. 449, that's your third best receiver. He only had one touchdown. Um, you know, we can go through these other receivers, but the season's just not that impressive. You got Jermaine Curse, 371 yards, a touchdown. You know, Terrell Pryor, not on the team anymore, played just a little bit, 235 yards, two touchdowns. Deontay Burnett, by the end of the year, he had 143 yards, no touchdowns. Jordan Leggett, a guy that caught, like, one ball in every game, had 114 yards, one touchdown. So when you look through that, you're like, oh, geez. Six touchdowns for Anderson, four for Herndon, two for Pryor, who was, you know, barely there, and then just one for everybody else. You know, so not a great season. Robbie Anderson, he had 50 catches. That's the most in the New York Jets team, 50 catches, believe it or not. Nobody even sniffing 100. Nobody sniffing 75. That 50 catches was tied for 68th in the league for catches. Receptions, right? Herndon, 39. And then with 38. Kerr's 37. Everybody else under 20. Nothing big. Nothing big going there. So that was our receiving game. You're seeing now why Sam Darnold's season wasn't great. The running season wasn't great. The receiving season wasn't great. The offensive team stats weren't great. And offensive coordinator got fired. We don't have a quarterback's coach. Josh McCown, we'll see where he is next year. You know, all this stuff happened, so um, it makes sense when you look at it. It was uh, less than fruitful, but there definitely were glimpses throughout the season where you were excited about Robbie Anderson or Quincy Nunma. There were moments where you were thinking Crowell was great, moments where Eli McGuire played pretty well, Sam Darnold for sure. Um, I'm going to skip the offensive line because I've talked about them plenty and there's no stats to go through that. We don't really need to recap their seasons. We saw what we saw. A lot of those guys are going to be hopefully replace, especially on the interior portion of that offensive line. But moving over to the defensive side, try to move through this a little bit quicker because I want to get to coaching. Tackles, tied for 14th in the NFL, pretty solid. Avery Williamson at 121 combined tackles. Tied for 20th in the NFL, Jamal Adams at 115 combined tackles. Pretty solid. That's one of our better categories for anything we've seen so far. So those are our team leaders, Williams and Adams. After that, you got Lee at 74, Screen at 58, Claiborne at 57, Everybody else below 50. Um, it was really Williams and Adam, Williamson and Adams getting the big share of the tackles, and uh, it's you know they made their way to the top of the top of the league there. Both of them in top 20. Adams had a great season. Williamson was also one of the best players in the Jets team. You saw it all year long. Going over to the sacks, Jets had 39 sacks. As I said before, that was led by two guys, Jenkins and Anderson, both with seven, both tied for 38th in the league. A couple guys with five, Copeland. Leonard Williams, Jamal Adams, he snuck in there with three and a half, Avery Williamson, three, Frankie Luvu, young undrafted kid, hopefully we can get him back for next year, he had three, Jeremy Atachu, he had a portion of, of the season playing with the Jets and, and getting on the field, he had two, Neville Hewitt, who took over for Darren Lee at the later portion of the season, one and a half, Pierre Lewis split time with Neville Hewitt in that role, one sack for him. Marcus May injured this year. He had a half a sack, and Buster Screen, he had a half a sack. Add it all up, 39, which is two more than our opponents got against us. They had 37. Pretty solid season considering uh, your leading sack artist had seven sacks, and it was Jordan Jenkins, then Henry Anderson at seven. I mean, that's crazy. 39 total sacks. I mean, it's, it's just 
you know, Jets type football comes from here, comes from there. It's not one guy. Don't tee up on him. Key up on him. It's it's him. It's him. It's him. It's everybody. He gets one. He gets one. He gets one. It wasn't a ton. 39 is not some crazy number, but you get to 40, you're pretty happy. They almost got there. Tackles for a loss led by Jamal Adams with 11 and a half. Uh, pass deflections led by Claiborne at 14, Adams at 12th. That was uh, 11th in the league for Claiborne, 19th in the league for Adams. I mean, Adams had a, a great season when you look through it. The guy had three and a half sacks, 12 pass breakups. He had an interception. He had three forced fumbles. The guy had 115 tackles, 20th in the league. It was just a great season for him. Um, when you go over to the interception side, the leader was Trumaine Johnson, tied for 7th in the league with four, followed by Darren Lee, who had three, and uh, Morris Claiborne had two. One interception on the air for Daryl Roberts, Avery Williamson, Marcus May, and Jamal Adams. Forced fumbles, you know, Jamal Adams, tied for 11th in the league with three. That guy was a, no wonder he was a, a first, a starting Pro Bowl safety. I mean, the guy is absolutely awesome. I think he was second team all pro. Um, but a really, really good player, a guy that you can build a defense around. Awesome intensity, entertaining to watch. Love the kid. And then uh, some fumble recoveries. Jordan Jenkins had two. Tremaine Johnson, Williamson, Robinson. Scree- That's Rashard Robinson thrown in there, yeah. Buster Screen and Adams, they all had one. So that was the players on defense. When I built this uh, structure for the episode in my head, it was like, oh, this will take five minutes, that'll take five minutes. I did not anticipate being 45 minutes into the episode, getting over to special teams right now with coaching still to go. And the mailbag questions, I mean, gah! Um... <sighs> breathe um special teams Andre Roberts had an incredible season he made a pro bowl he had the most return yards in the league he had the second longest touchdown for any return on a kickoff this year at 99 he had tied for the most touchdowns for any kick returner with one he had the second best average for any kick returner in the NFL wow second first second first killer kickoffs but how was he on punts? Well, he was first in the NFL in punt return average at 14.1. He was tied for first in the league for touchdowns on punt returns with one. And he had the third longest punt return touchdown in the league this year, 78 yards. So an absolutely almost historic return season, um, definitely in Jets history. The guy had a killer freaking year. He made a Pro Bowl for it. He's a journeyman guy who's been around for a long time. He's over 30. We got to get him back. He was only on a one-year deal, but he's definitely worth bringing back. The other pro bowler, Jason Myers, he had a great season too. He was tied for third with the most made kicks in the league at 33. He was seventh with the best percentage at 91.7% on field goals. And he was tied for first for 50-plus made kicks at six. So the guy was booting them deep all year long. He didn't have a great, he was lower in the uh, extra point percentage. He wasn't great on extra points. But overall, 91.7%, you're very happy with that. He made 33 kicks, six of them over 50. He was six for seven on 50-plus yard kicks. I mean, that's great. He's also really good on uh, 40-plus yard kicks, so good season from him. Locke Edwards, a guy who was quietly playing good special teams for the New York Jets, he's worked his way into a top half of the league punter. He's not, you know, top 10 guy there yet, but he's working towards, you know, top 16. And if you're better half of the league, you're definitely a starter. And, you know, he's young. He's working towards working towards the top right now. In average, he was 9th at 45.9 per punt. Net average, he was 13th at 40.8. And punts inside the 20, he had 23. That was 18th best in the league. So when you look at Locke Edwards, it's like, yeah, when he's 9th, 13th, and 18th in the biggest punting categories, you're looking at a guy who, you know, averages around 14th or so, 13th in the league. 
I'd be pretty happy with that. I hope that he can improve on it a little bit, maybe get a few more inside the inside the 20. Um, it would it will help if we have better gunners and stuff. Trenton Cannon definitely had a couple opportunities to keep the ball out of the end zone, at least two that I'm specifically remembering right now where they rolled in on his dime. And, uh, you know, Lock Edwards definitely would have been a little higher there. But a solid season from him. Special teams overall, bright spot for the New York Jets in the 2018 season. So, at the end of it all, the New York Jets finished with those offensive numbers, 29th in the league. Their passing offense, you know, 26 points per game, 23rd. Very, very tough year for the New York Jets. And with that, Todd Bowles is fired. So we bid Todd Bowles farewell. He wasn't a guy that we ever disliked as our coach, right? He wasn't a guy that you were like, well, he's a bad guy. You never rooted against him. Uh, he just didn't quite have what we needed to win. He was a defensive-minded coach in a league that was focusing on offense. We had a young offensive uh, quarterback we wanted to build around, and he didn't quite have the idea that we were looking for. He was great in press conferences because he wouldn't say anything. He never made negative headlines. He didn't have to deal with being embarrassed by something that he said like he did with Rex Ryan, even Herman Edwards sometimes. But at the end of the day, the guy was 24-40 and 40 as a head coach. His only really good season was in 2015 when he was 10-6, and 6, but missed the playoffs by losing to the Bills in the last week. He finished second in the AFC East that year. Other than that, the Jets finished in fourth place in the AFC East the other three years he coached. 5-11, and 5-11, and 11, and this year 4-12. and 12. What I think is interesting when you look through Todd Bowles' career, um, well, you are, we're going to wish him well. I think he's a good defensive coordinator, and we're going to you know, hope he does well with Bruce Arians in Tampa Bay. It's not a team that we're going to play very often every four years, so it's not a big deal. But uh, what was interesting was that he's had a four-year deal in 2015 that was set to end this year. But at the end of last year, they signed him an extension to go through 2020. And I think it's interesting, following a 5-11 and year, with a 5-11 and year before that, why they decided to give him another contract instead of letting it run out and just kind of seeing where he was at this point, they thought that he was worth an extension, and it only took one more year for them to go back on it. I think it just kind of speaks to ownership and, and management a little bit on what exactly their plan was, what they were hoping from to get out of him when they signed him to extension just one year ago. And it was all set to like kind of line up, and he'd do four years, do his entire contract and leave, but they were like, well, we want to make sure that we get him. So they re-sign him, and then right when his contract would have expired, they decided they need to fire him because they just gave him that extension. It just doesn't line up great. It doesn't look amazing for the front office in terms of their decision there. But the Jets are moving on, and it's for better, for sure. So with that, I welcome in new New York Jets head coach, Adam Gase. Adam Gase, the New York Jets head coach. Yes, we remember his name from being the head coach of the Miami Dolphins. Right, we've been playing against him for a few years. He's been coaching the Miami Dolphins for three seasons now. He's been okay. He's an offensive-minded guy, as we know, and have some mixed opinions on the guy. So let's go through the timeline of what it was like when we got him, right before we got him up until now. Before the Jets are going after him, Adam Gase is on the bottom of my list, right? We play against the Dolphins. I see him over there. The Dolphins aren't a team that I really admire or want to be like, so Adam Gase is like, all right, it sounds like the players don't like him too much. You know, Jarvis Landry left this and that. He's probably not a guy that's top on my list. I don't pay too much mind to him. I don't think the Jets are going to go after him too much. I start setting my eyes on these college guys. Bruce Arians is saying that he's going to come back. It's like, oh, what's he going to do? There's these other offensive coordinators from other teams. I kind of start falling in love with Todd Munkin, the offensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I start advocating for him. So Gase is at the bottom of my list. You know, he's above some other players like Jim Caldwell and whatever else, but Gase is not up there. 
Then the news comes out. New York Jets signed Adam Gase. Blows my mind. I couldn't believe it. I said, oh my gosh, Adam Gase, he's the guy? So what do you do? You start looking for stuff. You start saying, all right, well, why did we hire him? There's got to be something to it. You start reading articles. You're like, oh, he's got a pretty good offense. All right, wow, he did do some complex things with the Miami Dolphins. If you look through what they did last year and watch some film and the way they used Albert Wilson and Kenyon Drake and made some good things happen. All right, he had a pretty good resume with the Dolphins overall. I mean, that's a team that you're working with Jay Cutler, Brock Osweiler, and Ryan Tannehill. If I told you right now the Jets were getting any one of three those three quarterbacks, how excited would you be? Hey, we just got Jay Cutler or Osweiler. You'd be like, oh, shit, we're going to suck now. Right. It's not necessarily all Adam Gase's fault, so let's not put too much on it there. So you're like, all right, I, I can make excuses for that, right? He's a smart guy. He's offensive-minded. You find out he talked to Sam Darnold. I didn't know he talked to Sam Darnold. That's great. What did Sam Darnold think? He loved the guy. They had FaceTime meetings. They, Sam Darnold endorsed him, said, I want to get this guy. But it's like, all right, well, what else? I mean, so he's had a decent go at Miami. He's got definitely an offensive mind. He's smart. Sam Darnold likes him, but what did he do before that? Well, he worked with Peyton Manning, who called the New York Jets and completely endorsed him as well. Said, you got to get this guy. He was an off awesome offensive coordinator. Adam Gase was the offensive coordinator with the Broncos, working under John Fox. So he leads Peyton Manning to, like, the best season that Peyton Manning's ever had. I think it was, like, the best offense that, let's see, Gase was the offensive coordinator for the Broncos when they broke the New England Patriots scoring record for a single season in 2013, scoring an NFL record 606 points. And that's the offensive coordinator there. Plays well in 2014 again. John Fox gets fired, goes to Bears. Gase goes with him to the Bears. Gase does pretty well there. That's a team with, you know... Jay Cutler and whoever else that you don't really want to be an offensive coordinator for at that point in time, an old Matt Forte, uh, injured wide receivers, and he's got a tough go over there. But the Dolphins are looking for a head coach. They bring in Adam Gase. So that's kind of his timeline. And when you see that, you're like, all right, the guy's had a pretty successful career. I mean, he worked with some great guys. He must have learned a lot from Peyton Manning, who does so many pre-snap audibles that, like, you can call your offense, but when you watch what Peyton Manning does under center – recalling the plays, calling blitzes, seeing everything before the play. I mean, you've got to be learning a ton. Like, why is he doing this? Why is he doing that? Adam Gates is a smart, cerebral guy, and he picks up on that stuff. So that's big. He's worked with some great guys. He's had all sorts of different receivers. He's got guys like Jarvis Landry. He worked as a quarterback's coach for the Detroit Lions back in the day, working with Megatron, great receiver like that. So you got big guys and Megatron reception guys and Jarvis Landry. He's done a little bit of everything. He's run some complex stuff. And so I'm like, all right, I can get behind this guy. You know, he doesn't have a great coaching rec record in the NFL overall. I think it was uh, overall 23-25. and 25. Made the playoffs once, 0-1 in the playoffs. I was like, but I can get behind this. It's pretty good. I mean, what, what would a good coach do in Miami with that team, with Ryan Tannehill getting injured and Jay Cutler coming in for a year and Brock Osweiler and all this stuff? Like, what would a, what would a good coach do? I don't know, probably not much better than 23-25 and 25, in my honest opinion. And so... All right, I'm behind it. Then he does his press conference, and it's like, oh, my God, this guy is psycho. What is going on with his eyes? He seems totally unprepared. He seems like he's never been in a room with that many photographers and reporters in his life. He seems scared. Uh, the whole thing was just rubbed everybody the wrong way. They got memes going like crazy. I'm like, they're going to eat him alive. This guy's not even going to make it a freaking week without being afraid of the city and going to those press conferences and stuff. So all of a sudden, I go back down like, oh, maybe he's not ready for this New York job. He was doing it in teams like Chicago and Miami Dolphins don't have nearly the, the press and the and the pressure that the New York Jets have, especially as a head coach here. And so I'm like, all right, this is going to be maybe a little worse than I thought. And then he comes back on the radio and starts, you know, going against those things, starting saying why he was acting that way. He says, 
people were uh, giving him a hard time in some interviews. They were like, well, why were your eyes like that? Why were you looking so crazy? What do you think about all this? And he was like, honestly, I don't think about it at all. It's completely irrelevant to me because I'm here to coach the New York Jets. I got a plan. I'm working with Sam Darnold, and I could care less. And he said it so believably well that I was like, you know what? I really believe him. I don't think he does care. I think it doesn't bother him at all. He's a smart dude. He's probably like one of those guys that's just like a little bit too smart to act normally. But that's what we need because he doesn't need to act normally. He needs to have good ideas and push them to the team. You know, he's got coordinators and people to help him out. He's got to be able to push his plan and make sure that other people understand it. But it's got to be a deep, complex uh, plan to begin with. It's got to be strategic and, and have a, you know, it's got to have structure and a reason for why it's being called instead of just running on first down up the middle every time. It's got to be like, why are we doing this? What's the team we're playing against? Deep, insightful, offensive game planning. And I think he's going to be good for that. So overall, Adam Gase, what do you want more with Sam Darnold? Do you want a guy that focuses on quarterbacks? That's Gase. You want a guy that's got NFL head coaching experience and has done this stuff before? It's Gase. You want a guy that you can pick his coordinators? Not pick them, but you can help guide rather than allow one of these other college coaches like Matt Rule or someone the Jets were looking at. They didn't want to get him because he wanted to bring his own coaching. And they were like, oh, some of these guys that you have on your list are just not going to be NFL coaches on this New York Jets team. So they're bringing a guy that they can help move that stuff along. Offensive-minded, young, coaching experience. Adam Gase checks all the boxes. And it makes sense the Jets got him. And I hope that he builds a good relationship with Sam Darnold. I hope he doesn't get in too many fistfights with our defensive coordinator. I hope that he gets a good relationship with the players and can keep guys like you know Jamal Adams and, and Marcus May and other stars in this team or future stars. I hope he can keep them happy. So we're going to be bringing in some big names as well, and he's got to be able to handle those personalities. If we're going to be spending money, 100 mil this offseason, you got to imagine maybe some pro bowlers, maybe some egos, maybe some personalities are going to be entering that locker room. That's one thing to watch out for. We'll touch on Adam Gase a little bit more as his coaching goes on. We don't have a ton to base it off of yet, just what we've seen with the Dolphins, which is a team that, you know, we don't really respect what they're doing over there too much. But uh, what we've seen with them, and for the most part, we're going to build our own assumptions when we see what Sam Darnold can do because I think that's a better project than he's ever had he doesn't have a Tannehill who's been in the league before an old Peyton Manning who yeah he did amazing but Peyton Manning was already established at that point when Adam Gase was coaching him not an old Brock Osweiler Jay Cutler something like that it's a young 21 22 year old Sam Darnold that is going to play his butt off for Adam Gase and he's going to learn the offense and do exactly what this guy says so it better be good now, going from there, our offensive coordinator, Dawa Lagains. I mentioned earlier, a lot of co coaches will bring their coordinators with them. Dawa Lagains is going to be our offensive coordinator. Adam Gase is going to probably call the plays for the New York Jets. What Lagains does is he's more of an extension of Adam Gase in practice, on the sideline, in coaching, because Adam Gase has a certain culture and a style and an offensive mindset that he wants to instill in this New York Jets offense. And Dawa Lagains already knows it knows what it is and can help teach it with him so it's just having another pair of hands that knows exactly what to do Adam Gase doesn't have to check up on him too much he's like you already know what we're all about here logins so you know it's more of that it has a reduced role from what Jeremy Bates did Jeremy Bates called the plays last year that offensive coordinator role was much more important than what it does now now it's almost just like an assistant coach in terms of just like who's gonna you know help facilitate practices and things like that but Gase is gonna be the mastermind behind the whole offense Dawa Loggins also looks exactly like a combination of Nathan Lane, who was Timon in Lion King, Frank Caliendo, and Patton Oswalt. 
and if you look up all three guys and you just combine them into one blob, it is exactly Dao Logains, which is going to be very fun to look at all year long. Defensive coordinator is the biggest deal for me. I think almost as important as the head coach hiring was the Jets' defensive coordinator signing in Greg Williams. This guy is an absolute nut job, crazy psychopath, hardcore, intense defensive coordinator, but he knows what he's doing. He brings the house on third downs. He makes it very, very hard on rookie quarterbacks. I got a clip earlier in the season the Jets played the Browns, and I said going into that game, I was like, this is going to be a bad game for Sam Darnold because Greg Williams is a very, very good defensive coordinator. He brings pressure like crazy. He brings very complex defensive styles and systems. He's been doing it for a very, very long time in the NFL. I knew it going into the game. Sam Darnold had a terrible game, one of his worst of the entire season, and a lot of that was because of Greg Williams. Greg Williams takes over for Hugh Jackson after Todd Haley and Hugh Jackson get fired, and that whole team is an absolute dumpster fire. Greg Williams leads them to a bunch of wins, and it's like, okay, this guy should probably be head coach, but they didn't make him a head coach because they wanted to go with an offensive guy. So they took Freddie Kitchens, who was their offensive coordinator, promoted from you know, quarterbacks coach like, or running backs coach, like I was saying before, they decided to go with that guy instead of Greg Williams because they were afraid to have a defensive head coach trying to move away from that. They want to build with Baker Mayfield. They go, as good as Greg Williams did, you know, all things aside, if they had a really strong defense, young defensive stars over there and no quarterback, Greg Williams would be the head coach of that team for sure. He did a great job over there. He's been a great coach, well-respected around the league for years. The New York Jets get him. Honestly, in my mind, he's definitely a top five defensive coordinator in the entire league. He should be a head coach one day. He's got a very, very strong, vibrant personality. If you haven't seen any of his clips, check him out on YouTube. He screams like crazy. He's a very, very hard-working coach. He likes his guys to push really hard in practice. Adam Gase was interviewed. They said, Adam, what do you like about Greg Williams? Why do you want to bring him in? He said, well, the biggest thing is this guy pushes it hard in practice every single day. He doesn't take days or plays off. And it's great competition all year long for the guys on offense. He doesn't want to go against a defensive coordinator that's, you know, going half. You know, not that anybody goes half, but just, like, doesn't push the guys to 100% in practice. Just practice. Let's just go easy on it. Adam Gates wants to run full speed against a full speed defense, and that's exactly what Greg Williams is going to bring. So I'm super excited about that signing. I think it was absolutely awesome. It's going to be huge. The only thing you worry about is, you know, a little bit of clashing between Greg Williams and Adam Gase. It's possible. Williams has had his run-ins in the past, but uh, and Gase, some people say that players don't like playing for Gase, whatever, but we'll see how that all shakes out. Special teams coordinator, the Jets retained Brant Boyer. Makes sense. He didn't have a great first season with the Jets, but last year, two pro bowlers in Andre Roberts and Jason Myers. Locke Edwards, like I said, top half of the league in punters, in my opinion. Um, that guy has to be taken back, so he's going to be our special teams coach again. Very good work on his part. We got a new offensive line coach, Frank Pollock. He was the Bengals' 2018 offensive line coach. If you look through, uh, you know, the team and the and the articles and things like that on his coaching, the Bengals thought that he was a very good offensive coordinator. The only reason that he's being removed from his position, most people wanted him back, is just because they're getting a new coach in there. And with Marvin Lewis gone, he's out of a job. You know the new coach is going to come in, probably going to bring his own offensive guys, his own offensive line coach, yada, yada. So Frank Pollock is in need of a job. He's like, i got to find something before I get fired and all these jobs are filled up. The Jets have the opportunity to bring in a guy that probably never should have been fired because he did the job well. Just wasn't the guy for the team that was over there. So we get him. We don't know a ton about him, but he's worked with the the Bengals, of course, who had a, a good, pretty solid offensive line last year and had some rookies that they were bringing in. Um, and then he also worked with the as an offensive line coach with the Cowboys when they had like the best line in the league a few years ago. And so he's definitely done it before. 
you see now it's supposed to be done and work with some great players some young guys as well he should be a good fit got a new wider wide receiver coach which is also super important for the jets since we're going to be trying to cultivate that get these young guys better bring in some new guys and really help sam darnold out uh sean jefferson he was a former nfl wide receiver he was a uh a wide receivers coach with the dolphins it's another guy that's had history with adam gase also worked uh the Detroit Lions team not sure I don't think it was when uh, Adam Gates was there but he worked with Megatron as well he worked with the Dolphins and uh, Jarvis Landry same guys that we were talking about with Adam Gates you know when you're working with a wide receiver like a big guy like Megatron a smaller guy like Landry totally different style players both very successful worked with both of them definitely has a little bit of a resume as a wide receivers coach and we'll see what he can do a lot of it's going to come down to the talent of the players in the field the offensive play calling that's done by our offensive head coach Adam Gates but this guy's got to help lead the way Sean Jefferson He's going to be our new offensive wide receivers coach. That's what's going on right now for the most part for the New York Jets head coaches, at least the ones that I thought deserved to be mentioned at this point. Welcome, Adam Gase. Um, really looking forward to seeing what he can do, kind of taking this team in a new offensive direction. Seems like we've been focused on the defense for a very long time with, you know, Eric Mangini, Rex Ryan, Todd Bowles. And it's nice to kind of go back to the offensive style, see what we could do. we got this new young kid that, I'm more excited about Sam Darnold than I've been about a quarterback for the New York Jets in a very, very long time, and uh, I think we got great opportunity here. I want to get to a few mailbaggers really quick. Had a couple questions going on. Uh, one of the guys asked me, you know, what do we do with uh, Darren Lee now? Is he a better fit in this 4-3 defense? Do we keep him? Or do we boot him out of here? What's the scoop? Well, Greg Williams, one of the big things that I didn't mention that's going to be big with him is we were running a 3-4 defense with Todd Bowles, which means three defensive linemen and four linebackers, two outside, two inside, in a base defensive scheme. Now, obviously, they run a lot of nickel, add a cornerback in there, pull one of those linebackers or another player out. But in a base scheme, you get your four DBs, four linebackers, three defensive linemen in a 3-4. The Jets are switching back to a 4-3, which they used to run back in the day. And uh, that's what Greg Williams is probably going to do. We're inspect expecting that he's going to install that with the Jets. Now, the Jets have some of the least amount of players under contract, for next season, losing guys like Henry Anderson, Steve McClendon, and more on the defensive line. So it's not going to be hard to, you know, if you need to replace those guys and think, all right, maybe we don't go with a Henry Anderson if he's not a great fit for a 4-3. Sure, he had a great season last year, but Henry Anderson had been in a 3-4, had been very successful with the Colts, switched his weight. They asked him to get bigger to play in a 4-3. He did that, got injured, didn't play as well, didn't like it. The Jets brought him in. One of the big selling points to come into the Jets was like, well, they traded for him, so he didn't have a choice, but they sold him when he got there. I'm like, hey, you can go back to your weight. You can play that 3-4, that position that you want to play. That's what he'd done, and, uh, you know, he had a better season. But for uh, overall for this 4-3, how is it going to affect Darren Lee specifically? I think that overall he may he's going to have an opportunity to have more success. I think that a smaller, faster outside linebacker is definitely more helpful. He's not going to be playing a middle linebacker on this team. Your middle linebacker is going to be your tackling machine. That's going to be Avery Williamson. Darren Lee is going to have to play an outside linebacker role, which is possible. He's going to have to work on continued coverage. He's going to have to have good coverage on the receivers and, and tight ends, which we think he can do pretty well. I would think he would be a strong side linebacker and cover those guys. Now, from there, you'd hope that he'd be able to blitz. He's got to be able to shed the blocks of a guy like a tight end. Darren Lee has been a pretty passive tackler, pretty passive guy around the edge. Not great at getting in the backfield, making sacks or anything like that. So he's going to have to play with more of an edge. And if he can't do it, we know he can cover decently well. But if he can't bring a little bit more intensity and aggression, I don't see why he would remain on this team. Greg Williams is coming in with no affiliation 
or reason to keep Darren Lee on the roster. And Darren Lee's maybe got some upside, potentially. You see it. You know, that's why he was drafted early. But the guy's not playing well. He doesn't have the heart and aggression. And if Greg Williams can't get it out of him, there's no reason to stick it with him. I mean, this team needs to get better. We have to find areas to improve. And that's one of the ones that I can see right away. And if he's not a good fit, you know, you got to bring in another guy to compete with Darren Lee right away. Bring in a third outside linebacker for this new scheme and say, all right, who's going to do what? You know, gosh forbid you have three guys that are really good at playing the same position or two guys that are really good at playing the same position. I mean, Darren Lee missed time this year. Most of our players in this team missed a game or two this year, it seems like. Happens every year. And then from there, you're still splitting time. So we'll see. I mean, I wouldn't be sad to see him go. I'd be happy to see an improvement from the position. But if you want to keep him in there, team-friendly deal, and give him an opportunity to play well and win the position with Greg Williams, sure. But you got to be ready to cut ties the second he's not playing well enough. Henry Anderson, a guy, he could easily be off the team for a switch like this. There's some other guys. Leonard Williams is probably going to be switching positions. Is he going to be playing inside now as a defensive tackle? Probably, because usually your defensive ends in a 4-3 are going to be speedier guys to get around the edge faster. More like your, you know, Michael Strahan, John Abraham, OCU Minora. Those are your defensive ends that you remember in New York recently in a 4-3 defense. When you go to a 3-4, uh, it's a little bit different. So Leonard Williams may have to move to the inside. We'll see. Can he get faster or bigger and stronger? And then with his contract coming up, is it going to be worth keeping him? Is he going to be able to fit the new role? Now for the rest of the mailbag, I had a lot of questions on, uh, you know, upcoming free agents for the New York Jets targets the Jets are going to be looking at. That's stuff that I'm going to go over in the upcoming episodes because we got a lot of time before all that stuff happens. It's not until like mid-March that free agency actually begins. So we got all of February to kind of digest everything, figure out what we want to do. Jets haven't hired all of their assistant coaches yet. So the first step for the New York Jets is filling out their assistant coaches. We go over all that. Then they have to look at the players that are currently on their roster that are not free agents yet. So the second free agency begins is when all the players who have expiring contracts for the New York Jets become free agents. Right now, they're currently under contract still for what they had going on. So you've got 29 players under contract for the Jets, everybody else expiring contracts. You've got this time. Once you have all your coaches there, you got to take a look at all the players you have currently that are about to be expiring and say, all right, we've got an opportunity to get these guys first since there's no tampering before the anti-tampering period. We've got an opportunity to look at our guys in-house right now and decide who's expiring on a contract that we want to retain. Do we want to go after a guy like Henry Anderson and keep him on the team? Do we want to keep a Mo Claiborne or whomever else? There's tons of them. You go through the list. Guys expiring, we're going to go through that. But the team's going to look through, figure out what they want to do, and then make offers. Say, all right, we'll try to bring Andre Roberts back for this amount of money because he was really good. Jason Myers, what do we want to do with him for this amount of money? They'll make some offers. Some of the guys will resign, some of them won't. Some of them will want to test free agency because they think they can make more money or they just don't want to be on this team. Some guys will resign early, but that's the first step, is looking at in-house free agents. Then from there, after you've done that, you've filled in some of the gaps. Maybe you've resigned seven, eight guys. You've got 36 guys under contract or so. Now you're getting ready for free agency. You're looking in the rest of the league saying, all right, who's available around the league? Who's going to be a free agent? What do we want to pay for them? How much money do we have? Where do we want to spend it and allocate it? get these guys and start filling holes. You don't want to be relying on the draft too much because you don't know what's going to happen, who's going to be there, too many variables in the future. So you just work on now, free agency, who can we get, how can we make this team better, what fits Greg Williams' style, guys like Dawa Loggins, Adam Gase, what's everybody trying to do? Mike McCagnin's going to work with all of them to figure out exactly what kind of pieces they want to bring in. As they do then, you fill out free agency, you spend all that money, you leave a little bit of room on the roster for draft picks, 
Then comes like April 26th, 27th or so. We go to the draft. Before that, we spend time doing combine, looking at players, seeing who are we going to get in the draft, how are we going to fill out the rest of the roster. You know, you don't want to rely too much on a rookie playing or starting for your team. Usually you want to have a guy set in place before them, and then that guy earns the role. You hope he does earn it, but you can't rely on it because you don't want to throw a rookie out there that can't do the job. That's just asking for failure. So many rookies don't pan out. It's an untrusted, unproven guy who's never played. You don't want to just throw him out there. So it comes down to being prepared, setting everything up beforehand, and doing that by keeping your in-house upcoming free agents that you want to have and then going outside to fill in the holes in with the rest of the guys, spending that $100 million, trying to find team-friendly contracts, things that make sense for the New York Jets and the new coaching staff. And those are the things that we're going to focus on as we come up. Like I said, free agency doesn't start until mid-March, so we've got time to look into all that stuff. Certainly going to do that. We're going to do a bunch of stuff pre-free agency, talking about guys we're going to go after, follow it as free agency is going on, then start looking pre-draft, follow that stuff as the draft is going on, post-draft, and then get into training camp, stuff like that. And as this is all happening, things will start to take shape with the you know, the coaching, what we're trying to do, what we're trying to build towards. We'll see as we're bringing these players in, like what the idea is moving forward. This is maybe Mike McCagden's last shot at trying to make something happen, and he's doing it with an offensive-style coach, so he's probably going to want to put pieces around him to have that offensive successful. You don't want to bring in an offensive coach and then say, all right, we're going to put everything on the defense and try to go that way. makes no sense to go that way. You kind of have to feed into what your coach is for. They've already bought into this guy, given him this contract, so clearly it's time to buy in and start spending the money in the right places. Tons of stuff coming up. Um, looking forward to all of it, as always. Super Bowl coming first. Uh, I won't do another episode before that, so hopefully the, the uh, Los Angeles Rams do us well. I think everybody listening to this podcast is very much rooting for Jared Goff, Sean McVay, and the Los Angeles Rams, big time. But yeah, more of that stuff coming up. If you got more questions or anything like that, anything you want to hear talked about in the show, there's definitely more time with the offseason going on. It's not as dictated by games and stuff that's happened. We can kind of fill in the gaps the way we want to. So reach out, engage on Twitter if you're interested. Uh, at Jets underscore Dan is the Twitter name. Follow me on there. This podcast is on gangrenationpodcast.com. So check out that website. Listen to the stuff there. Check out Michael Nanya, his podcast. He's got one going on, Gangrene Nation Podcast. Pretty hot. Like, subscribe, rate whatever review the podcast it's all good helps it out makes it uh makes it more available to other fans and stuff get it out there always appreciate that stuff but thanks for tuning in for this one had a good time making this episode looking forward to do another one following a rams victory in the super bowl and uh that's all i got for you i'm dan burnham and this is the jet life